0: All right. If you want to open in your Bibles to Daniel, Daniel chapter eleven, we will continue to worship as we study God's Word together. This is your first week with us. It is an interesting week to uh, join us, but we're going to have some fun, and uh, I'll try to make sure everything is as clear as possible. We are closing out the book of Daniel with these final two chapters. And this text that we're looking at today is uh, one of the most layered, one of the most complicated, one of the uh, somewhat confusing passages in all of the book of Daniel, which makes it one of the more confusing passages in all of scripture. So again, welcome if this is your first time. Uh, One commentator confessed uh, that he did not see how it could be used in a sermon or sermons. So thank you, Tony, for giving me this text. Uh, I I do understand why he says that about this this text. Uh, If you've read through it before, you probably are nodding along saying, yeah, well, I mean, we'll see how this goes. Uh, Honestly, I'm saying the same thing. Um, But I, I do think we can study it to some benefit this morning. Daniel chapter 11 and 12 drops us into the middle of a vision that has already been going on. It started back in chapter 10. And uh, Walter walked us through last week, um, the first section, chapter 10 of this vision uh, that Daniel has. He's visited by some kind of angelic being who has met with him uh, based on uh, Daniel's, uh, his pleas, his prayers, his longing for, for God to uh, set everything right. And this angel comes in and he says that he wants to tell Daniel what's, uh, what's about to come. What is what is going to happen as he moves forward. And so now in chapter 11 and 12, we get that actual prophecy. In chapter 10, he meets Daniel and says, I've got a word for you. In chapters 11 and 12, we actually get that word from the angel given to Daniel to say, here are the things that are coming at you. Here is the actual prophecy about how God's redemptive plan is going to unfold. And yes, there is going to be, as we study this text, some fairly crazy stuff that goes on. And uh, I'm just going to go ahead and confess, we are not going to be able to exhaust all of it. Uh, there are going to be questions that are uh, remain unanswered based on just our time uh, but this morning. But I do want to give you a sense, a, kind of an overview of what what is being accomplished, what is being revealed in chapters 11 and 12. And if you uh, just have some, uh, kind of want to get in the weeds, you've got some good kind of Bible nerd questions, I'll be happy. You know, Christy, Clayton, I see you guys. I will be there. There for for the Bible nerd questions up front afterwards. I'm happy to to go there. But I don't know that that's gonna be the most helpful thing for all of us because you really can't get lost in the weeds. Uh, One of the, the things that's repeated is just the word he in this text. And unfortunately... We're not always exactly told who the he is referring to. And so I confess that as I was preparing, I got out my my paper, I got my colored pencils and I was trying to draw like a through line to make sure my, my he's were lined up, to make sure I'm talking about the right person. There's going to be all kinds of stuff like that that might be a little confusing, a little bit just kind of make us uh, kind of cock our heads and go, what is going on here? But I do think that there is a very clear theme throughout this revelation, throughout this prophecy and it is that God has revealed to Daniel and to us his redemptive plan to increase our faith and to inspire our faithfulness. He wants to make known what is about to happen so that he can increase the faith that his people have in him and his plan and his sovereignty over all things. And he wants to, because he has control over over all things and because his people can trust him and follow him and can devote themselves to him, they do not have to uh, kind of be tempted to to go after other gods and other other things. They don't have to give in to oppression and opposition that comes against him. Instead, because they know that he is God over all things. They can be faithful to him throughout anything that comes their way. It's almost as though the entire prophecy is given to Daniel and given to the people of God to just as, as like a heads up, as if to say, look, it's about to get crazy. It's about to get weird. It's about to get hard. It's about to get dangerous. And as we'll see, that's exactly what happens. But through it all, you need to remember that God is in absolute control through all of those things. As things get dangerous, as things get difficult, as the the oppressors come in, as the dangers abound, do not let it even enter your mind that the sovereign God of all things has lost any ounce of control. He has not. And he wants to reassure Daniel, look, I'm gonna reveal what's coming so that you know I am still on the throne. No matter what happens, My plan has not been thwarted. This is very much a part of the plan. And even if you don't understand the plan, even if you don't fully know all the details, even if it's very unclear how something so terrible could fit into God's redemptive plan, he says, I want you to know, you can still trust me. Walk with me. I've got you. And friends, that is, Is the good news for us this morning. That is good news for you and for me right out of the gate about this text. Isn't it good to know that God has a redemptive plan that cannot be thwarted? Isn't it good to know that our God is working in human history to accomplish his purposes and no matter how bad it looks, no matter how bleak it looks, he is still on the throne today. Brother, sister, today in the year 2021, our God is on the throne. And what I know for a fact is that some of you guys are going through deep personal trials today. Some of you guys are going through deep difficulty. It might be a a cancer diagnosis. It might be the loss of a loved one. It might be a a job loss or an illness. It might be a pervasive sense of, of loneliness and rejection Students, kids, it might be relentless social pressure to give in, to conform, to impress. You might have been or be in an abusive relationship. You might be finding yourself at the hands of some kind of mistreatment, a coworker, a boss, a family member, or a friend. Some of you are going through deep personal trials, and I think this text has a word for you. Some of you are deeply concerned about the state of our culture, the state of the church, how is it that things can get this bad? How is it that God's people can veer off to the left or to the right? How is it that our nation is where it is? How is it that the culture, etc., 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 and the temptation is going to be to think that God has somehow lost control? And this passage is here to remind us that our God is still on the throne no matter how bad it looks. Some of you are battling what feels like blow after blow after blow from a spiritual attack from the enemy. Or maybe perhaps temptations within your own heart and you just feel like you are captured in between this kind of grand spiritual battle. And I just want to encourage you this morning, brothers, sisters, friends from Daniel chapter 11 and 12. Our God is still on the throne and his redemptive plan cannot be thwarted. It will not be thwarted. And I don't want to give trite and trivial, simplistic answers to any of those things that, that any of us are really struggling through. But as we walk through this text, I really want to invite you to have one or two things in your mind that say, what are the things in my life that I have a hard time placing within God's good redemptive plan? What are the things that in my life it, are, it is most difficult for me to reconcile with the idea that our God, the God of the universe is on the throne and he controls all things. Because those are going to help you as you walk through this text that's what God's people are going to experience in the things of this prophecy and what we see in Daniel 11 and 12 is that even when it looks like the people of God are being kicked around destroyed oppressed squeezed used our God has not lost control and his purposes will be accomplished And our response to this revelation, to this confidence that he is on the throne is that we can trust him and we can walk with him. He's got the rest. He's got all the details. He's gonna work it out. You don't have to put the pieces together that say, how does my suffering lead to and accomplish some grand purpose of God? You don't have to figure all of that. Here's what you have to do. You trust him. He is still on the throne. He is in absolute control. So we can break this chapter, or these, these two chapters down in, in three sections. I want you to see uh, throughout these, these three sections, uh, uh, God's redemptive plan as kind of the focal point of these two chapters. In verses 1 through 35 of chapter 11, we see the unfolding of God's plan. What's happening is an angel is meeting with or revealing in a vision to Daniel things that were going to take place beyond after Daniel's time that he may or may not C. see. You might remember from the context of Daniel that he is living in this time of the exile when God's people were were pushed out of the promised land, push, pushed out of God's, God's uh, uh, promised uh, area for his people in Israel. Uh, and yet, towards the end of his life, people had begun to go back and it looks like maybe there was some kind of restoration. And what what uh, God is giving to Daniel is this this glimpse into the future of how God's redemptive plan was gonna continue to unfold. And instead of it just being this kind of, simple journey upward, everything is gonna be okay. Instead, what Daniel begins to see is that there's gonna be some difficulty coming. So we're gonna see the unfolding of God's plan. The second thing in verses 36 through chapter 12, verse four, we're gonna see the conclusion of God's plan. We're gonna see how all of this ends. And then the third thing I want you to see is the certainty of God's plan. I want just to land the plane, recognizing, acknowledging that this plan that God has put, his redemptive plan that he's put in place, it is secure. And in the end, he is is revealing these things to turn our hearts back to him, to trust him, and to walk with him, as we've said. So the unfolding of God's plan. Let's look at chapter 11 for a little bit. It is going to be helpful Uh, as we see what's going on in this passage uh, to remember or to recognize that a lot of what's given in chapter 11 is not necessarily brand new. What it is, is it a little bit more detail of something that's already been given to us. In chapter two, we already were led in through a vision, uh, the hint that there's going to be a succession of various kings and kingdoms that come after the, the Babylonians. There's going to be new world powers that come on stage. So we're already hinted at the fact that it's not like everything is just this, this Escalation towards the victory of God's people. There's going to be lots of other bad actors on the scene. In chapter eight, we get a little bit more information about that. We get this picture of a ram and then a goat. And in our study, we recognize that the goat that is pictured in that uh, uh, in that vision in chapter eight was none other than Alexander the Great, the great uh, Greek king and conqueror. He just kind of did whatever he wanted. He conquered. He went whatever he wanted. He did all kinds of things. But when his kind of of time was complete at a very young age, his kingdom was uh, kind of stripped away, He, he dies and then his kingdom is broken up into four different groups. And so his kingdom, instead of it being a vast, big kingdom is broken up and now we've got four smaller kingdoms. And in the vision in Daniel chapter eight, what we learn is that one of the kings of one of those kingdoms kind of rises to the top. He kind of asserts himself a little bit. That was the little horn in Daniel chapter eight. So we've already covered a lot of this. What happens in uh, Daniel chapter 11 is just taking that whole story and just building it out a little bit more, giving a little bit more detail. So Daniel 11 elaborates this, this same revelation in two sections. The first one is very short, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. In the first uh, few verses, verses two through four, you can see but he's kind of recapping what is happening between the the Persian and the Greek empires. You can see that the Persian empire is gonna have a great king who will give away to a mighty king in verse three. This again is Alexander. And in these few verses, what we see again is that that empire is gonna be broken up and it's gonna be scattered into the four winds. And so they're gonna be kind of all over the place. You're gonna have four new empires that replace the goat's kind of uh, single empire uh, that uh, that was kind of a worldwide empire. That's all that you really need to capture from verses two through four. That per- The Persia and Greece section is basically saying, remember that guy, Alexander the Great, that's gonna come on? Uh, just don't forget about him, okay? After he comes on, on the scene, his empire is gonna be broken up into four. Now, for the sake of understanding the rest of the text, keep that in mind. Alexander's empire was broken up into how many? Oh, there you go. Okay, good. Hey, uh, I should do more of that. Uh, okay, The second section, verses five through 35, are focusing on two of those four kingdoms, okay? One is in the north and one is in the south, okay? So if you can picture kind of where Jerusalem is, you've got one kingdom that is to the north and one kingdom is to the south. And what happens in these few verses from five to 35 is there's this kind of geopolitical tug of war that is happening And God's people are kind of caught in the middle of it. There's one to the north of Israel. There's one to the south of Israel. And they're fighting one another. What's in the middle? Israel is. Let's try that again. What's in the middle? Okay, thank you. All right, good. We're tracking along. We're gonna do a lot of this because it gets confusing. Okay, so now when when we get this prophecy, we need to remember this is not meant to be like a cool carnival trick, where he's like, I bet I can tell you the future. You know, like, it's not like this slimy guy who's like, I've got this this fun thing I can do here. And then Daniel's like, well, that was really fun. No, 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 he's trying to encourage Daniel. He's trying to exhort Daniel. He's trying to prepare Daniel for what's coming. And he's saying, look, there's gonna be a kingdom in the north, there's gonna be a kingdom in the south. They're gonna be fighting, but guess where God's people are gonna be? Right in the middle. And that's gonna cause all kinds of problems. This is meant to show God's people that even as they are in the midst of a geopolitical turmoil, which is actually, as we saw in chapter 10, and and we see even bits in the, the passage that we're looking at today, is actually the manifestation of spiritual turmoil and battle and warfare that is going on. God's redemptive plan is not threatened. Even as God's people are being kicked around like a soccer ball. God's plan is not threatened. And indeed their job is to trust him and to remain faithful to him So verses five through 35, again, the focus on these two kingdoms. And it can be a little confusing to see kind of individual kings. There's actually a a succession of king after king after king in these kingdoms. And as you read through chapter 11, it can be a little tricky to know who is the, are we talking about Ptolemy the first or Ptolemy the second? I'm going to assume most of you guys are not like super caught up on your Ptolemaic empire line of succession, okay? Uh, That's a safe assumption, okay? Uh, No offense if you are. And, and so I find it helpful that instead of trying to track king after king after king, let's think in terms of kingdoms, kingdom of the north, kingdom of the south, and recognize that in each of those kingdoms, there's gonna be a passing on of kind of the mantle. And so in the kingdom of the south, sorry, um, that's gonna to refer to the Ptolemies, the Ptolemaic kingdom. And, and here's where that is, that's in Egypt, okay? So the kingdom of the south, if you know your kind of Middle Eastern geography, what's south of Israel? Well, Egypt is, okay, so that's helpful. And then the kingdom to the north, geographically north of Israel, is Syria. This is the, uh, uh, the Seleucid or the Antiochian kingdom. Those are the two kind of dynasties, houses, lineages that are going to be going to war. The kingdom to the north is the Antiochians, the Seleucids. Uh, the kingdom to the south is going to be the Ptolemies. You've got Egypt, you've got Syria. Okay, everybody got the lay of the land? All right, here's what I think you need to know as we're walking through this text is that verses five through 12 generally are going to show us the rise and the superiority of the kingdom to the south for a season. You can see it just starts off right out of the gate in verse five. Then the king of the south will be strong, but one of his princes will be stronger than he and shall rule. So you get that passing down of the mantle and his authority shall be uh, and his authority shall be a great authority. And so we're set up to understand that this king of the south or this kingdom of the south seems to have the upper hand. And, and indeed, that's what we're gonna see in verses, as you read through verses five through 12, is that the kingdom of the south always seems to be kind of coming out on top. In verse six, the kingdom of the south and the kingdom of the north try to set up some kind of marriage alliance. It gets kind of creepy and weird. Uh, it doesn't actually work. Uh, But still, the king of the south ends up on, he ends up uh, being more powerful and more secure. The next king uh, in verses seven through nine is actually able to invade and defeat the king of the north. So temporarily he's able to to kind of uh, get the upper hand like we said. And then in verses 10 through 12 there's actually an attempted invasion by the north into the south. The king of the north is going to make an attempt on on taking over or at least uh, putting pressure on the kingdom of the south and it doesn't work. The king of the south is able to push it back. He's able to resist this act of aggression. And the result, as you see there in verse 12, is that uh, his heart shall be exalted and he shall cast down tens of thousands. You should see there that there is this this arrogance that develops in his heart, that he begins to think, I am in control. He begins to think that I myself have all rule and authority, but right after that in verse 12, at the very end of verse 12, it tells us, but he shall not prevail. This is the rising and the falling of a king right in front of our eyes. The king of the south is, has ascended and now it is on the decline, which leads into verses 13 through 21. It's kind of the, the transition. Instead of the king of the south being the one that's more powerful, you have the kingdom of the north that begins to be more powerful. In verse 13, uh, the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. What I want you to see in verse 13 is that the king of the north realizes he can't beat the king of the south by himself, and so he gets himself a little allied army. He gathers other people with him and says, Let's go and take it to the king of the south. There's two things I want you to see as as you just catch that little tidbit that there's an alliance that is formed against the king of the south. First, some of God's people, knowing the unfolding of this plan, are going to try to, to accelerate, they're trying to speed along the development, the unfolding of God's plan by means of political and military might. And friends, It doesn't work. Look in verse 14. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south and the violent among your people, Daniel, shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision. But what? But it shall fail. The second thing I want you to see right after that is that those who entrusted themselves to political and military rulers for, for salvation, for rescue, for speeding along the plan of God, they will eventually see those rulers turn against them. You see it in verses 15 and 16. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city and the forces of the south shall not stand or even his best troops for there shall be no strength to stand. Verse 16, but he who comes against him shall do as he wills and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in, not the south. This king of the north isn't, isn't setting up camp in, in the south. Where's he setting up camp? In the glorious land with destruction in his hand. I want to point this out because I, I think that it's a helpful word of caution for us even today. What I'm not saying is that we should be politically or culturally disengaged I think we should engage in social and political and cultural spheres, living out the gospel as kingdom citizens, as God's people. We should let our engagement in these social spheres be a manifestation of our our obedience to the the great commandment that says we should love our God and love our neighbors. And so we should should enter into these spheres as as a way to love the people that are around us, to love the people in our context and culture. But what I am saying, is that if we find ourselves putting our hope and our trust in a political party, a cultural influencer, or even a particular nation, as the necessary means for God's plan to be accomplished, hoping that these, this alliance will usher in the plan in the kingdom of God, we will find, just like the people of God did in, in Daniel chapter 11, first of all, that that hope and that plan will fail. And secondly, we will eventually see those things that we've put our hope in turn against us we'll eventually find that those that we look to for this kind of salvation, this kind of reckoning, this kind of rescue, this kind of deliverance, those things will turn against us. There is a rebuke here for the people of God. He has made his will known. He has said, I've got this. He said, no matter how, long, how hard and how bad it gets, I am in control. And the people of God says, we got this. And the answer is, no, you don't. And especially if the means by which you got this is to cozy up with these these nations and these geopolitical military rulers thinking if we can just muster our strength, then surely we can usher in the kingdom of God. If we can just win the culture war, surely we can usher in the kingdom of God. And friends, it will not work. And those that we find ourselves cozying up against will turn against us because their concerns are not the things of God just like it was with these kings. Well, we have to keep going. Verses 18, and 21, uh, 18 to 21, I just want you to see that that particular king that kind of rises to the top, he eventually falls, the next king after him also comes on the scene and he falls. And then in verses 22 through 35, there rises this, this character. You have, to, you have to know if we're gonna understand what's happening in the rest of this chapter. It is, it is a contemptible person in verse 21. What a way to be introduced in the Bible, right? A contemptible person. This is Antiochus Epiphanes. This is the next king of the north, and he is identified as a particularly gross and aggressive and effective ruler of the north. He is going to, uh, in verse 22, it tells us that armies shall be utterly swept away before him. He's going to exercise deceit. He's going to act deceitfully in verse 23 in order to partially to to cozy up to God's people. And as he grows in his power, he's going to make war with the South, but it's not just going to stop with the South in verse 27. In verse 28, you see that he's going to set his heart against God's own people. This is a man who in every way is trying to expand his power and anything that kind of gets in his way, he's going to take them out. Antiochus Epiphanes becomes this kind of legendary bad guy in the nation of Israel's history for right and understandable reasons. Because look at the next scene. In verses 29 through 35, after an invasion of the south that he's attempting, a second invasion of the kingdom of the south, it's actually deterred probably probably by the Roman Empire at this time where he, he wants to, to press in again to the kingdom of the south. He wants to go to Egypt and take over things. But Rome actually steps in uh, in the scene and says, nah, you're not gonna do that. And Antiochus is like a a I would like to say a child throwing a tensure tantrum, but just like any of us throwing a tensure tantrum. His feelings are hurt, his pride is wounded, and so he just wants to take it out on somebody. You ever done that? You ever had your pride so hurt? your feelings hurt, your disappointment's so large, you just want to hurt somebody and it doesn't matter who it was. We've all been there, haven't we? Antiochus is doing that just on a global scale of sorts. See, he wants to take his embarrassment and his anger out on somebody and who's right there? It's God's people, Israel. And so that's what happened. Verse 31, you see the details there. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress. And they shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble. And what I think that stumble means is that they're gonna be persecuted. For some days they they are going to be persecuted by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help and many shall join themselves to them with flattery and some of the wise shall stumble. This is a dark scene, isn't it? This evil king of the north, Antiochus Epiphanes, his feelings are hurt, his pride is wounded and he just needs to take it out on somebody and there vulnerable in between him and his chief enemy in Egypt, the people of God in Israel. And he just goes to town. Wickedly, destroying, deceiving. And you gotta put yourself in Daniel's shoes. You gotta put yourself in the people of God's shoes. And you just gotta wonder, God, in light of your deliverance, in light of your faithfulness, in light of your commands, in light of everything you've done for this people, how is it that this fits into your plan. And there's a certain extent to which we say, I I don't know. I don't know how all of this was, if all of this was necessary for God to accomplish his plan. But what the text does tell us is that God has a purpose through all of this. He has an intention He has a desire for what will happen in the lives of his people. Did you catch it at the end of verse 35? Some of the wise shall stumble. Some of them are gonna experience persecution. Why? So that they may be refined, purified and made white until the time at the end for it still awaits the appointed time. Do you catch that, Christian? Whatever that thing was you mentioned earlier, the suffering, the oppression, the disappointment, the fear whatever that thing that is coming at you and you find yourself crying out, God, how does this fit in with your plan? What we can say for certain is that God wants to do something through your trial. He wants to do something something through your tribulation and he wants to do it in you and in me to teach, to refine us, to purify us, to grow our faith in him. Christian, Whatever you're going through, this is one thing we can always say for certain God wants to do through your difficulty. He wants to increase your trust in him. He wants to increase your confidence that he is in control. And that might, it might entail us going through some difficulties and some bumps and some bruises along the way, even at great personal cost. There are people dying in this scenario so that God's people will be refined, will be purified, and their hearts will be turned not towards the things of this world looking for salvation, but instead towards their God. That is what he wants to do in this season of difficulty. The unfolding of God's plan sounds awesome. It might be really hard for you and for me. But the unfolding of God's plan is going to be ripe with opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for you and I to not direct our hearts inwards, not direct our hearts towards just other people, not direct our hearts towards the things of this world that cannot satisfy, not direct our hearts to the, the, the systems of this world, the geopolitical, military rule. None of those things can rescue us or bring about God's plan. There is one on the throne though. And these things are meant to strip away our trust in all those other things. These difficulties are meant to strip away our our inclination to run after all those other things and instead redirect our hearts to the God who is on the throne. It is his plan that's unfolding. It is not our plan. It is not the kings of this earth's plan. It is his plan that's unfolding. And we find ourselves in it. And as long as it's his plan and he's on the throne, we can trust him. So that's the, that's the unfolding. Let's look at the conclusion of God's plan. We're gonna go really fast through this, but I think it's really helpful. Verses 36 in chapter 11 through chapter 12, verse four, they focus, the focus of the prophecy shifts. It shifts from being, uh, looking at the details of the specific kind of geopolitical developments that are happening. And I think what happens is it zooms out, but it's subtle because you might notice that in chapter 36, or sorry, in verse 36, it just says, the king shall do as he wills. It seems like he's talking about the same person, but I think that I think that there's a zooming out that's happened. I think that there's a, a broadening of scope in God's redemptive plan that that the, uh, the angel wants us to see. And there's a couple of reasons first, the king that is mentioned in verse 36 and following in some way resembles Antiochus Epiphanes. He's still a wicked guy. He's still pretty terrible. We're supposed to look at him and go, ugh. okay. But in other ways, he doesn't really, he doesn't really, Antiochus Epiphanes doesn't fully fulfill everything that this king, historical figure, this king, this picture, uh, is said to do in verses 36 through the end of the chapter. And so that suggests some of these things are like like the way he, he uh, crushes the worship and he deifies himself and he worships other gods. Some of those things just historically don't seem to match what we know about uh, Antiochus' uh, epiphanies. Some of the way that even the, the historical developments uh, kind of uh, transpire, they don't really match what we've got in here. So it seems like there's something else going on. And then the second thing that I think we see is that it, it focuses more and more on the time at the end. There's a, there's a, a recurring kind of phrase and theme that, of what is gonna happen at the time at the end. And in this passage, that refers specifically to the resurrection from the dead, which decidedly did not happen in Antiochus Epiphanes' reign. And so let's look at these two things in place. First, let's look at the king. First, uh, uh, this this king, I think we can recognize that what the, the prophecy is doing is using Antiochus Epiphanes. He's using this wicked king as kind of a template for something broader. That would be this kind of this kind of spiritual template for one kind of ruler or spirit who is opposed to God and opposed, opposed to God's plan, opposed to his people. There is there is the establishing of of a pattern, that there is a kind of person in this world who is against the ways of God and against his people. So he's using the king. In, in, verse, uh, in chapter 11, we see that this king does as he wills. He exalts himself above all gods. He blasphemes against the one true God. He worships anything that gives him power in verse 38. That would be the God of fortresses. He rewards those who turn to him. He conquers his enemies ruthlessly, He rages against them and in verse 45, he dies. He's done, he finishes. Now, some are gonna take all of that and they're still gonna argue this is specifically referring to Antiochus, Epiphanes. Others are going to insist that it decidedly does not talk about Antiochus Epiphanes, but instead is a prophecy of this kind of end times antichrist, this one final big bad guy. The bad. I played the first video game I've played in like years uh, yesterday with my young nephew and I was terrible. Uh, but the thing about Mario, it was just Mario and I was bad, uh, is at the end of a few levels, you finally get to the boss, right? and the boss has all the special powers and he's kind of the worst, right? There's, the, there's this thematic progression that happens. Well, some are gonna read this prophecy and say, this is kind of the big boss at the end. This is the antichrist. Now, it will come as no surprise to some of you guys who know me that I don't necessarily think we're locked into either one of those things. I think there's a middle way here where there's there's again a using of Antiochus Epiphanes as something of a representation of a broader spirit of evil and resistance to God's plan and his people. And it is this spirit of Antichrist that is present in Antiochus, but it is not totally fulfilled in Antiochus. And it points to something later on. I think because that there's this kind, of, this, this kind of left unsettledness to who this man is, I think Jesus is picking up on that theme when he even predicts what's gonna, what has to happen before his own coming. He goes back and talks about the abomination of desolation and says, remember that guy way back then that was kinda terrible? Something like that's gonna have to happen again before my return. And then Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter two is going to, can, going to use some of this exact same language from verses 36 to 45 to describe what he calls a man of lawlessness that must enter onto the scene before the return of Jesus. And then John in his letters is going to again pick up on this theme, now identifying antichrist and antichrist and say there is going to be this pattern. There are going to be antichrist. Those are against God's plan and his people and it was going to fulfill, it's going to be fulfilled finally in an individual, okay? So it seems like there's this biblical pattern saying that there is, there is going to be a, a spirit, there is going to be a prevailing, recurring existence of a kind of person who looks at the plan of God and does everything they can to resist it. And the angel wants to reveal this to Daniel He wants to show him, he wants to establish this pattern to prepare him before this guy gets on the scene, right? Why? I think there's three reasons. Don't be surprised. Don't follow after him. And don't think that God's plan has been derailed. Brothers, sisters, we are going to run into, in our day and the days to come, those that are against the God we serve. They are giving themselves over in every way to things that are contrary to the message and the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have been transformed, we have received, we've been transformed by, and we hold so so dear. Do not be surprised. Do not be surprised when it looks like they're winning the day. Do not be surprised when it looks like Satan is winning. Don't go after it. And don't forget, God is on the throne. His control hasn't been weakened. He's not threatened. This is a pattern that's going to continue on for centuries, for ages, for millennia. There are always gonna be enemies to God, enemies to his gospel, enemies to his church. And over and over again, God's people have to be reminded, don't be surprised, don't get duped into following them and do not forget that God is still on the throne. Why? Why should we have that kind of confidence? I think we can have that kind of confidence. We can have that kind of hope. We can have that kind of, uh, uh, of, of rootedness in the reality of God's plan because of what comes next. If you look, the second section of kind of looking at the the culmination, the fulfillment, the end of God's plan is this beautiful picture of resurrection. Even though this king is going to usher in a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation till that time, the angel doesn't want Daniel to despair. He says, your people shall be delivered in verse one. Everyone whose name shall be written in the book of life. Sorry, written in the book. Everyone whose name is written down will be secured. No one's going to be lost. It's going to look like they're winning. It's going to look like like Satan is on the march. It's going to look like God's plan is threatened. No one will be lost. No one will be taken out of the Lord's hand. And he explains how that can be. Certainly he's looking around and he's seeing, look, you're just telling me lots of people are gonna die at the hands of these enemies. How can this be? And the answer is resurrection. There is going to be a resurrection. You see this in chapter, two, chapter 12, verse two. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Here we see the fulfillment of God's plan. Was never, never dependent on the victory of any geopolitical rule, any military advancement. It was never dependent on God's people ushering in his kingdom. Rather, it was secured by the one who fully and finally and eternally defeated death. Why is it that God's plan is secure? He has defeated the last enemy. Death itself. This is the message of the gospel, friend. That our God, the one we trust in, the one we rely on, even when everything around us looks like it's going against him, the reason we can trust him is because he did not stay far off away from our trials and tribulations. Instead, he sent his son to enter into this world to himself be marginalized, to be pressed in on, to be torn apart, to be pushed to the breaking point even into death, and it looked by all accounts that the enemies of Satan, the enemies against God, had won, except what happened? God raised him from the dead. Resurrection, friends, why is it that we can trust this God? He can raise people from the dead, and he did it in his son, he did it for his son, and he promised that he's going to do it for everyone who is attached to him by faith. This picture of resurrection is a great picture of hope for you and for me. When everything looks like it's falling apart, when the trials and tribulations that you're going through in your personal life and culturally and church wise, when they're all pressing in and it looks like everything is losing, we have, we have one, one kind of last card to play and that is our God raises people from the dead. There is nothing in this world that can defeat that. He is faithful to his people. He will not lose any of them. He's not just faithful to his people, he is just. Did you notice that? He's gonna raise some to everlasting life and then he's gonna raise some to just judgment. God's people looking around saying, how is it that we are caught in the middle of all these wicked kings just kicking us around like a soccer ball and God, it's as if God is saying, don't worry, I got that too. I will execute perfect justice. I, when my plan is complete, everything will be set right. You can trust me, which leads us into this last section, the certainty of God's plan. Not everything in this text, especially after just the last few minutes, is clear. Thankfully, we have someone who understands. I love the honesty here in verse eight. Daniel gives voice to what all of us are feeling, doesn't he? I hear you, but I don't understand you. Amen, right? If you, if you have looked at Daniel chapter 11 and 12 and said, I understand the words you're saying, but they don't really make a whole lot of sense. You're not missing it. That's really what's going on here. Like that's, that's actually part of, of the point. In this final section, we've even got a couple questions. He wants to know how long is it that all this is going to last? And he wants to know how, how is everything going to shake out? What's the, kind of the outcome of all these things? And the answers he gets are kind of like, they're kind of answers, but they're not full answers. The oppression of God's people, he's told, is going to go on for a time and times and half a time, which is to suggest that it's going to be an extended period of time, but it's not going to be an infinite period of time. It's going to be a defined segment of time. And it's going to get bad. If you look in verse 7, you'll see that it's it's going to come to an end when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end. The picture here is that God's people are going to be at the end of the rope. It's not this slow ascendancy towards victory for God's people. It's just hanging on by a thread. He said, it's it's gonna last until it looks pretty bad. So bad that it's gonna divide people. Some are going to pursue righteousness and some are gonna pursue faithfulness. There's gonna be this, this sorting out that happens. But where it lands in verses 11 and 12 is an offer of blessing to those who are faithful. He says, how long is this, the, the, the angel actually gives him, it kind of throws him a bone and basically says there's gonna be 1,290 days for all of this and, you know, d- uh, to take place. Blessed is the one who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. I don't think we have to get into the, the minutia of what those numbers mean. What we can recognize is the blessing comes for those who persevere through the difficulty. Those who pushed all the way through the difficulty, that is where blessed. Those who remain fixated on the faithfulness of our God through all of these things, they will be blessed. Daniel doesn't get all of his questions answered. He doesn't get all the details. He doesn't come into a full and final understanding of all things. Even in verse four, it basically says, uh, knowledge is gonna have to increase. You're gonna have to grow in your understanding of all these things as they develop. But here, that's, that's not the point. Daniel, your hope and your security, your certainty is not wrapped up in you knowing all the details. Your certainty and your hope and your security is wrapped up in the fact that you know the one who has all the details. It is not your plan, Daniel, and you don't even need to know the plan. You just need to know the one who has the plan. It is his plan, and because of that, our, our security and our future is absolutely guaranteed. Brothers and sisters, I cannot tell you how all the details of your life are going to kind of miraculously work for this beautiful outcome as though your life was like a Hallmark movie. A Christmas Hallmark movie. (laughs) It might not happen. It might not happen. What I do know is that through whatever difficulty, you can trust the God who is on the throne. You can trust the one whose plan it is because this future is absolutely secure. This future is guaranteed because he sits on the throne. We don't have to worry. We don't have to wonder. We can trust. And the invitation is for us to trust him and to walk with him faithfully through all the difficulties. The blessing is for those who walk with him through all these things. Christian, you have an immeasurable source of hope and encouragement you know the god who sits on the throne friends guests who've joined us you might be listening to all this and you say i don't know what it's like to have that kind of security and honestly i kind of want to say i i know i don't know how you can get this kind of security i don't think you can get this kind of security any other means other than knowing the God of the universe who reigns over all things, whose plan is perfect and is being unfolded. But the invitation to you today is to know him. It is to trust him. It is to rest in what he has done for you. He holds out an invitation to you. He wants to know you. He wants to walk with you. He wants to give you this secure future and hope. And the means by which he's done that is as I mentioned earlier, he has not stood far off from all the, the, the trials and the tribulations. He's entered into it in the person of his son and he's lived the life that you and I could not live. He died the death that you and I deserved. He defeated the grave as we talked about earlier so that everybody who trusts in him, their security, their future is absolutely guaranteed. You can have that confidence today. What prevents you from trusting this faithful God today? I cannot promise you that life will be easy In fact, if this passage is to be believed, it could get pretty hard. But what I can promise you is that the God whose plan is unfolding is good and he is faithful and his throne is not threatened by anything that's going on in your life or mine or around us. And that is a great source of hope for all of us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for that confidence that we have, that you are good and you are faithful. God, you are lovely. And you are sure that there's nothing in this life, there's nothing in our lives, there's nothing even in our rebellious spirits that can threaten your lordship over all things. And so we praise you for that. And I ask for the members of this church for my own heart and life, Lord, that we would find um, in you a great source of um, security, great source of hope, Lord, that our eyes would be fixed on you and that you would use this, this unfolding plan to increase our faith, and to inspire us towards faithfulness as we walk with you all our days, knowing that the end is secure because of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.